So welcome here this evening. I hope you have come with great anticipation. I certainly have, and I am so looking forward to this evening. We've got Dr. Ewan here. This is coming to the end of an amazing week for us as a school. I think we've been batting way above, or punching way above our weight, or batting way over our average this week with Dr. Houston and Dr. Ewan here. So it's a pleasure to have you here, Christopher. Now, throughout the evening, those of you who have cell phones, don't turn them off. No, 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 leave them on. You're busy people, we know that, and that's good. But if you happen to have a question you'd like to ask, and you especially like to ask it anonymously, then we have a telephone number that's gonna be on the slides throughout, and we're gonna have a Q&A at the end. So we're gonna have a lecture first, where Dr. Ewan is going to be talking about different things, and then there will be a chance for us to be asking questions through our, our cell phone. There may also be a rowing mic, so you can do that as well if you happen to not have your cell phone with you. But you're welcome here. Your cell phones are welcome here. And we look forward to a great evening together. Just before I open in prayer, I want to, uh, to introduce Dr. Ewan to those of you who weren't here this morning. I'm going to go off script, Christopher, which I know I was told not to do, but I just do that. He is a graduate from Moody, Wheaton, and Bethel Seminary, has his doctorate degree. I would like to say this about him. He is a world-class scholar. He is a widely sought conference speaker, having spoken in many places, including Saddleback and um, Willow Creek and the ABHE conference, which we host as a school, as among other schools. He's a comedian. He's a holy man of our creator. He is an apostle for our times. And he's a man who enjoys the blessing of our good father. Christopher, I wonder if you'd come on up and I'll open in prayer. Oh, no, 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 I've got this as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, don't forget this. We give this beautiful globe only to very, very special friends of ours. It's a crystal globe, has a picture of the world. The thing that makes this one so special is that if you look through it to the bottom, you'll see our wheat sheaf, which we hope is a symbol of our message in our school and our alumni going all over the world. It's yours as a special friend of our school to take with you. Let me open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for Christopher. We thank you for the brotherhood we share. We thank you for the sonship that we share in you. So bless us, we pray, with your Holy Spirit. Fill to overflowing Christopher, that he'll overflow with his message to us of your love and your care for us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. There's going to be a, probably a lot of notes um, as we go along, so if you guys are interested, you can, um, let's see if I can get this, scan this QR code and get the digital copy of my notes if you'd like. If you don't know what a QR code is, that's okay. You can write down with pen and paper this shortened URL at the bottom. Um, I, I tried to put that on the bottom of every slide, so as you're going along, be like, oh, actually, I'd like that. You, you can still get that. 
and also the phone number there in case you want to text in a question. I think we're also going to have a roaming mic for those of you that, um, like my dad, don't, um, don't have a smartphone and maybe just have a dumb phone. Um, <laughs> my dad's still asking me, how do I turn it on? I think he has text, but he has no clue how to work it, so that's okay too. Often, I'm sure many of you hear of people who say, I'm Christian, and I believe that the Bible does not condemn same-sex relationships. They would even say the Bible actually advocates for same-sex relationships. We're looking at the same Bible. Same Bible, 66 books, Genesis all the way to Revelation, yet they come up with the complete opposite conclusion when it comes to same-sex relationship. How in the world do people do that? I think for years, evangelical Christians have said there's no question about sexuality. Sex is reserved for a husband and wife in marriage only, and it's good, it's a gift, it's a blessing. Anything outside of that context would not be something that God would bless. Whether it is before marriage, whether it is outside of marriage, adultery, whether it is, uh, I mean, all the other iterations that we have, including same-sex sexual intimacy, is not something that falls within God's will. And yet I would say in the recent few decades, there have been people who say, I'm a Christian. And the Bible does not condemn same-sex relationships. The Bible has just been interpreted incorrectly, just like it's been the Bible was interpreted incorrectly regarding other issues, such as slavery or such as interracial marriage, etc. They'll, they'll give lots of different excuses. And that's been going on for several decades. But what we find with many of these, these that we've heard for a long time what you find with them is, is that their way of justifying is, well, the Bible is just wrong in these places. Some of these mainline denominations will come to conclusions like that. Recently, you will find people who will not say the Bible is wrong. It's just been interpreted differently. It doesn't condemn monogamous same-sex relationships. That is what uh, people who hold to this position would say. So, how do they come up with that conclusion when we look at the same Bible? And that's what I want to discuss this evening. I want to explain this interpretation, but also critique it. I, I want people to be familiar with it because I'm sure we're going to come across friends, especially you students. You probably have peers who, who you know, you maybe you went to youth group with, and, and now they say, you know, the, the, the church is wrong. And the traditional inter interpretation on sexuality is wrong, and we need to um, embrace the gay community. We need to embrace same-sex couples. If you remember in my testimony this morning, I, I talked about after I became a Christian that I went on to seminary and Bible college. While I was there, I, had the, I, I was so blessed to be able to take biblical languages here uh, at Moody and in seminaries, and I took both Hebrew and Greek. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I just knew that I liked language. And um, I love it how God knows. He knows 
why we do or why He puts us in situations and, and why He gives us a burden, a passion, a desire to, to do something. And God put that in my heart to take Hebrew, to take Greek for a reason, because He knew He would put me in ministry focusing on homosexuality, and I would need to have that foundation of biblical languages to engage with those who have a different view of sexuality, who use biblical languages, and I would say misuse biblical languages. So, it's amazing how God prepared long ago uh, that I would um, have that foundation. Now, I'm going to be presenting this information, and I'm going to be critiquing the gay-affirming uh, interpretation, but I want to be clear. I don't want you to, the, to view this as more ammunition to tuck away into your belt, to go do battle with those people that are so wrong, because honestly, I've rarely met people who came to Christ through debating, through arguments. I mean, you don't bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through a crafty answer. Only God can turn a heart from heart to flesh. That doesn't mean we don't do anything. That means that we know that we obey, we are available, we want to be used by God, but it's ultimately not necessarily what we say. It has to be God who moves first. So, I'm going to be going through from the Old Testament passages, I'm going to explain how they are understood by people who hold to uh, what we would call kind of the gay-affirming view, and then I'm going to respond to that and, and show how those views actually don't line up with context, with good interpretation and exegesis. Before we go through and talk about these passages, uh, we need to first look at a broader question, and it's the interpretive question. So, um, hermeneutics is actually, uh, oh, actually, I got the, yeah, my dad's up there. I was like, oh, how did that change? Thanks, Dad. That's, that's my dad up there. Thanks, Dad. This is your replacement. <laughs> so, you can relax. It's easier that way, because I can go fast, because sometimes, you know, uh, I was like, that point, I just go faster. Because, th th again, there's going to be a lot of information. Hold on. I mean, I, 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 I have to apologize sometimes because I geek out on stuff like this. And I don't know, you know, how many geeks there are out there, but I love this stuff. I thrive. I, let me just give you um, a little bit about why I love this stuff. I mean, because a lot of it has to do with language and for many people who go to seminary and, and in Bible college, languages is kind of like their thorn in their flesh. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Did you guys take, okay, biblical languages? Yeah, so it's, it's not easy. Uh, but as I got into it, I mean, it was, it was blood, sweat, and tears getting through Hebrew and Greek. Um, but, but, I mean, as I just thought from the philosophical level, how amazing language is. Think about this for a moment. All I've been doing for the past 10 minutes is basically I'm making sounds through my vocal cords, as air passes through my vocal cords, I'm making sounds, but also through my lips and tongue, that's making different sounds. And it originated from here. I, I had a thought first. That thought activated some neurons to fire some muscles to then make some sound, and then it goes through the air, right? 
and then it enters into your ears, and then as it enters into your ears, it then turn, goes into your brain, and it turns into another thought, and hopefully my thought in here is similar to yours. That's amazing. Think about that for a moment. I mean, that's just phenomenal, right? I, I don't know. I mean, if you break it down like that, amazing. I could start speak, making some other noises. I could start speaking Chinese, and I don't, majority, I don't know, are there any Chinese here? Any Chinese here? Okay, Chinese. You, you would probably maybe understand. I, that would be Mandarin. I mean, you, you know, I don't know if you speak Cantonese, but, but, you know, only a few people would understand that. But it still sounds. So that's, that's I mean, to me, mind-blowing. I mean, I wish like, I had a grade school teacher that, like, taught me. Then I'd be like, this is amazing. You know, it wasn't until later, like until I was in my 30s in Bible college that I was like, this is amazing. Um, but then, okay, that's the oral language. And, uh, but think about, you know, those of you that have notes right now, all you're doing is you got a pen or, or, or a pencil and you're just scratching on a paper. You're making lines, dots, circles, and et cetera. And that's supposed to mean something. You could go back a day later, a week later, a month later, and you look at it, and you, re- and you can read it. And that means something. I-, I find that fascinating. Fascinating. And then you could make other marks, and it could be a different language. Chinese is characters. I mean, French is, you know, main language here. And, and so, I just find that amazing. So, uh, language, we, we can't hardly do anything without language. I mean, think about relationships. How can you have a relationship without language? You can't. I mean, maybe you can, but I mean, it wouldn't be very developed. So, I find this fascinating. When it, anything to do with language gets me pumped up. So, hopefully you guys are pumped up now. All right, that was just my intro. Um, so, hermeneutics is a big word. It basically means the principles of interpretation. Hermeneutics is a term that applies to any time uh, you would interpret anything. Mainly, it ta- it's, it's pertaining to written language. So, when you read a newspaper, when you read, um, when you read a, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, comic strip when you read a novel, you're applying hermeneutics, the principles of interpretation. In, at, at Moody, we learned the definition to be the science and art of interpretation. And for the Bible, it would be the science and art of biblical interpretation because there's a, there's a method to it, but there's also more to hermeneutics and interpretation than just a step-by-step process. It's an art, so it takes practice, and also, we would add... That involves the Holy Spirit. You can't interpret correctly without the Holy Spirit, period. So there's more than just method. It is method. It is, it t- it's an art in that it takes practice, and some people are just more gifted. In, you know, they, they have that kind of bent to just being better at, at it. There's also definitely the Holy Spirit that's needed. So it's a sign and art of biblical interpretation. Now, those of us who hold to... Uh, the traditional view of sexuality where sex is reserved for a husband and wife. And I, and I need, to be, need to be honest, I don't like that term traditional because tradition means man-made traditions. I don't want to follow man-made traditions. I want to follow God. 
I want to follow His Bible. And so, I don't like this term. However, that's just the term that's been given to us, and I'm just putting it up there because I'd much rather the biblical view of sexuality, but as you can see, people can argue that. So, again, I, I, I would like to just say the biblical view of sexuality, but I'm just putting on my slides as traditional view and, and just explain to you, I don't like that term. Those of us who hold to the biblical view of sexuality, we have a prioritization of our principles of interpretation when it comes to biblical interpretation. Up at the very, very top is God's Word. God's Word is inerrant, without error. It's infallible, meaning it's unfailing. It's the final word on faith and ethics, especially sexual ethics, but it's more than that. It has to do with uh, that we are trying to do exegesis, which means we want to get the meaning out of a text as opposed to the opposite, which is eisegesis, which many of the modern, postmodern interpreters do. They want to put their meaning into the text, focusing on, like, what does the reader think, reader response. And so, that's, that's not what we view. That's not having a high view of Scripture. We would employ grammatical historical exegesis, meaning we would look at the grammar syntax, and that helps us understand what the original, what the author wrote. And we would look at context, uh, historical context, literary context. We would look at word meanings, figures of speech, etc. But again, it's even more than that as well. It's not just looking at a verse and even the context that it's in, but reading it in light of the 66 books of the Bible, reading it in light of the canon. We would call that canonical contextual exegesis. I would say that's probably the biggest weakness of the gay-affirming view. They don't do canonical contextual interpretation. What's this, I mean, what's the significance of that? When we read the Bible as 66 unified books of the Bible written by different people over a long period of time, but all written, moved by the same Holy Spirit, giving the same message, we will come up to a different conclusion than those who don't. Are you following me? Because those who read Paul think, well, Paul and Peter are different people, so they don't have to agree. So they don't read it in light of Paul and Peter or Moses or et cetera, going across it, or, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah. So that's really important that we read it in light of all 66 books of the Bible. Because when we do, you know what, that, what happens? That puts guardrails on our hermeneutics. And when there are no guardrails, guess what's going to happen? You're going to go off the road. There's, there's no, I mean, you're not going to have any, you know, lines on the road. You're, not, you're going to go off the track. So, reading thing in light of the canon, that means looking for what we call intertextual echoes. Anyone hear that term before? It's a big word, but you want to impress your friend, intertextual echoes. That means... For example, Paul could be, and I'm going to be giving you examples throughout, Paul could be saying something, and he's not quoting 
specifically word for word another passage in the Old Testament, but what he is doing is he is use, he's, he's taking key words from previous Scripture, and he's importing it in his, in his text, and what he's doing, he's alluding back to it. He's pointing back. We call that intertextual. So it's not like he's quoting an entire passage, but he's, he's, he's using these key words and pulling them into his, you know, and it could be a whole paragraph or a whole chapter, and that is pointing back to that. Those of us in our modern, illiterate, biblically illiterate world today, we don't catch that, which is sad. But people back in the time when Paul wrote those people who would, could memorize probably the Torah, and they knew their Greek Septuagint very well. They, they would read it all the time. They would hear it as well. We, we, we re- might read a lot. We don't hear it read a lot, but they would catch it. And, and, I mean, their ears would perk up. Be like, oh, he's, he's referring back to that. And they, 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 don't, they don't have chapter references back then, but he, they would know, oh, that's from Isaiah, or, or that's from, you know, Leviticus. We need to catch that. That's guardrails for our interpretation. So, scriptures are up at the very, very top. Then we have reason second, reason and science, and, and, and science, I think, is important. I don't believe that, that somehow the Word of God and science are kind of contradicting one another. I believe that God's Word is God's special revelation. We have science and nature, etc. That's general revelation, and God's special revelation is not going to contradict God's uh, general revelation. And so, they, they, they're going to not contradict one another. Experience also can guide us as well, but experience should never cause us to reinterpret God's Word. It can help us to apply God's truth, but it should never interpret God's truth. So, those who hold to a non-traditional view, often, often called a progressive view of sexuality, I don't like that term. I, I, actually, I, I'm just I'm critical about all different terms. I, you know, I, I can be hypercritical, but I guess that's my job. Um, I don't like the term progressive, and I'll explain to you why. Progressive, I mean, the definition of that means you're progressing forward, right? You're not going backwards. You're evolving, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're transforming and not going back to the old and becoming newer and newer and newer and better and better and better. That's progressive. So, again, it's not going back. The reason why I don't like that term, because it's not correct, it's not accurate. When you look in the ancient cultures, like for example, in ancient Israel, the Old Testament, the ancient Near Eastern world, and you look at all the nations around Israel, they all affirm same-sex relationships. When you go back to the first century, the church, and you look at Greece and Rome, they all, I mean, homosexual relationships were quite normal. So, when people say progressive, that's not true. If we're going to be accurate, it would be regressive, right? Right? I mean, it's not progressive. It's re- we're going backwards in time. They were very affirming of same-sex relationships back then, right? So, it's not progressive, it's actually regressive. But that's a bit snarky, but true, so I, I, don't, I don't use that. Um, but I'm going with revisionist, meaning it's revising what has been unanimously 
accepted by the church, by Jewish tradition for the past millennia. It's revising what has been accepted, uh, the gay-affirming view. And um, what we find is, get this, it's an inverted hermeneutics where no longer do you find Scripture at the very top. It's experience. I almost never hear where someone went from a traditional view of sexuality, a biblical view of sexuality, to a gay-affirming view whose story didn't go something like this. My son is gay. My best friend is gay. I've been talking to gay Christians, and they love Jesus. So how could this be wrong? And what you find is their experience is driving their hermeneutics. Whenever we let that happen, you will fall into false teaching and heresy. So experience uh, should never drive our hermeneutics. Underneath that, we find reason and science. One prevalent argument that I hear from people is that People will say, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't mention anything about same-sex relationships, monogamous same-sex relationships. And, and, and the Bible actually didn't even understand monogamous same-sex relationships. Or they will say, uh, the Bible never talks about uh, same-sex orientation. You know, we're... The, the, we're so much more informed today when it comes to uh, sexuality studies, etc., that uh, basically the biblical writers were just ignorant. They, they didn't really understand the concepts of sexuality as we do, as we do today. That's, that's a pretty common kind of reasoning that I've heard a lot. And when people say that, you know, what they're revealing, that they don't understand the doctrine of inspiration. The Bible is not merely written by a bunch of people. Amen? The Bible is not written by a bunch of ignorant human writers. It's written by man, and it's written by God. Inspiration is the Holy Spirit moving in the biblical writers to record His truth. So, what you know, though... The biblical writers possibly might not have understood what we, you know, our concepts today of sexual orientation, which, by the way, that concept in itself is, uh, is, is actually is fraught with problems. The sexual orientation as a concept of personhood is not something that lines up with our biblical understanding of our sin nature. Uh, so, you know, is... Could the biblical writers have been ignorant and then they didn't know that? Possibly, but God wasn't. That's, that's the main thing. Although, you know, the biblical, you know, Moses would not have understood this, you know, some of the scientific concepts that we have today or the psychological concepts that we have today, but we can't say God didn't know. And although maybe Paul or Moses didn't understand the concept of a sexual orientation, I definitely believe that they understood the concept of a sin orientation. And that's the more important concept. That's the biblical concept that I think we need to discuss rather than this 
modern uh, humanistic uh, concept of sexual orientation. Uh, but also then we have Scripture. People who hold to the revisionist view will say, oh, I have a high view of Scripture. But, I mean, I hear this a lot. I have a high view of Scripture. But when people say they have a high view of Scripture, that doesn't guarantee that they have a high Bible IQ. You know, <laughs> I have a high view of Scripture. Well, that's easy to say, but, you know, that doesn't also guarantee you have the correct interpretation. So, we need to look at uh, what it is and, and what are their methods. And when people say they have a high view of Scripture, but all they do are quote people who don't have a high view of Scripture, <laughs> well, that's revealing as well. So now let's, let's jump into the different texts. And we're going to start with the Old Testament, start with Genesis, Genesis 19. And as we're talking about these, I'm going to go from the Old Testament passages and move on to the New Testament passages. The Old Testament passages, uh, there's something that we need to learn whenever we look at old, any Old Testament passage. There's, there's kind of... The two questions you need to ask yourself. First of all, the, the general question, what does it mean? What does it say? The second important question when it comes to Old Testament passage is, does this Old Testament passage, this truth that it's teaching, does it apply to us today? Two questions. I didn't write it here, so maybe you can write it in your margins. First, what does it mean? What does it say? Second, does it apply to us today? Those are very important. And you know the sad thing is? I think many Christians don't know how to answer that second question. Why are there things in the Old Testament that we don't obey anymore? And when unbelievers or atheists or agnostics ask us this question, they stump many, many, many Christians. And they make us look stupid. So, uh, hold that, and we're going to, I'm going to, not completely answered, but be able to help us kind of think these th through as we go through these passages, because they defi definitely apply to these Old Testament passages. Genesis 19. This is the Sodom story, and historically, it's been known that Sodom was destroyed because of the sin of homosexuality. So, how do people who don't hold to that view understand this? Well, first of all, they will say, this story is not pertaining to a monogamous same-sex relationship. And there's a bit of truth to that. We could admit this is not about a, uh, a married gay couple. I mean, it, 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 there's nothing wrong with admitting to that, but that doesn't mean then, you know, the opposite necessarily true is saying that, so therefore it has nothing to do with same-sex relationships. That, that's the, you know, that's, that's not a, that's a logical fallacy. So, what is it, how do people who hold to us, uh, you know, who are gay affirming, how do they explain it? Well, one way is they say that this is pertaining to the sin of gang rape. If you look at the story, what was happening? The men of Sodom wanted to force themselves upon these two guests, the guests of Lot. So, it's gang rape. Now, I'm going to explain this view as if I held to this view, which of course I don't. But it can seem convincing. First of all, revisionists would say something like this. Gang rape was common back in the ancient times, especially in, in context of warfare, where people would attack a city, they would take prisoners of war, sometimes they would kill them, they would, uh, you know, torture them, and in that process, they would sometimes do sex acts on them as a way of humiliating, humiliating them. 
That was fairly common then, and the sad thing, it's not uncommon today, which goes to show that we're still sinners. <laughs> Nothing new. Nothing new. But the argument is, so that's what's being condemned here only, only gang rape and nothing else. Another way is, revisions will say, it's condemning the sin of inhospitality. Doesn't that sound crazy? But again, I'm going to explain this as if I held to this view, which I don't, but I'll show you how convincing it can seem, okay? Revisionists, they will go through and they will say, what's going on here is the sin of inhospitality, not monogamous same-sex relationships. And the argument goes something like this. Every time you look at, you know, you do a word study in the Bible, and you do a word study for the word Sodom, the city Sodom. And you look everywhere uh, outside the book of Genesis, so from Exodus on all the way to Revelation, it actually occurs 27 different times. That's a lot. If you look at every one of those times, all 27 times, never will you find that the Bible mentions it directly in context of homosexuality. So that makes you scratch your head. So, hmm, what's going on there? Never, Sodom is mentioned, homosexuality is not. So, I mean, so if we're saying this is why Sodom is destroyed, then revisionists will say, well, then why doesn't it mention homosexuality, right? I mean, so that, we have to deal with that. In addition, revisionists will say this and, and mention this, one of those 27 verses, and it is Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 40, 49, where the prophet writes this and says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She was arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. This is all referring to the people of Sodom. Does that sound like same-sex relationships, revisionists will say? And you'll say, no, it doesn't. Actually, it sounds like inhospitality. And this is from Ezekiel, an inspired prophet. So do you see how the argument can seem quite convincing, especially catch you off guard, and you don't know, wow, well, I don't know how to respond to that. I'll tell you how, but just hold on. Another, uh, another kind of maybe not as common way, which I think is, uh, but people will then go to Hebrew, this Hebrew word, and they will say this Hebrew word, um, which one of my biblical languages professors always warned us. He said, biblical languages, it's kind of like underwear. Good for support, not good to show off. So I'm always hesitant to talk about biblical languages, but I think it's necessarily necessary when it's being misused. But this is one way. So revisionists will say that word uh, to know. So in, in Genesis 19.5, the men of Sodom banged on the door, and Moses records in Genesis 19, it says that uh, the men of Sodom said, bring these men out, these two men out, so we can have sex with them. Literally, it's not to have sex with. It's a euphemism that's bring these men out so we can know them. That's a euphemism. So it's not literally bring these you know, men to have sex, you know, we want to have sex with them. It says, bring these men out so we can know them. So the argument is, these guys just wanted to know them. They just wanted to hang out and like, you know, the nice, let's, let's play, you know, Scrabble or whatever, let's, you know, like, you know, getting to know you, you know, you guys remember that, right? Um, 
that's really what they wanted, you know, and, and they'll even say that word to know in Hebrew occurs 943 times, almost a thousand times. Only 15 times does it mean to have sex with. So it's, it's, it's a very seldom used meaning of, you know, to have sex with that shouldn't be used here. So that, that's how the argument goes. How do we respond to these? Well, first of all, before we do that, we need to ask, what is this, what is, what's going on with Genesis 19? For us to do that, we need to look at it in context. Genesis 13 is the first time we, we, we mention uh, Sodom being mentioned, and it's when um, Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen are quarreling, you know that part? And they separate, and Lot goes in the direction of Sodom. And in that, right after it says that uh, Lot goes in the direction, he goes as far as Sodom. And that as far as is, is, is interesting because that's, that's usually not a good term. He goes as far as. That's, 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 that's a negative connotation. And then it goes on to give this, uh, this parenthetical thought that says, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners. So they weren't just wicked, but they were great sinners against the Lord. So, we know that actually nothing needed to happen in Genesis 19. They were already guilty. But what do we know about God? That God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He always gives people opportunity to repent. So, He didn't punish that city at that time. Genesis 18 comes along and it says, because of the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is, is great and their sin is very grave. So, we see that that's when God says, okay, I've had enough and He's going to punish this city. And, and then Abraham kind of uh, goes back and forth with God and says, you know, because he knows his nephew is there a lot, and if God destroys Sodom, his lot, his lot will be dead. So he's like, well, what about 50 righteous people? God was like, okay, I'll, I won't, you know, destroy it if I find 50. And Abraham, being smart, is like, that's a lot of people. <laughs> How about 45? <laughs> and then 40, 30, 20, 10. And, you know, finally God was like, okay, fine. If I find ten righteous people, I will not destroy the city. Sends two angels. Does God find two, you know, ten righteous people? No. So he destroys the city. But what's the moral of the story? Well, we know that by going into the New Testament, and we find where in Second Peter, Peter says, if by burning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Jude, verse 7 is, uh, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So, in other words, Sodom is an example of what God would do to the un ungodly. In other words, Sodom is a symbol, an example of God's just wrath. God is always justified in punishing the wicked. In other words, what was their sin? Well, probably lots of sin. Just one sin? Most likely not. They were guilty of a plethora of sin. They were probably guilty of gang rape. They were probably guilty of inhospitality. They were probably guilty of homosexuality. Lots and lots and lots of things. But it's definitely, uh, they were guilty of some major sins. How do we know that it could be more than just inhospitality? or gang rape, and it could point to homosexuality? Well, you know that verse that I mentioned in Ezekiel 16, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom, and it sounded like all inhospitality things? Well, what people like to do is just to pluck 
verses right out of the context and not read the whole context. Because if you go one verse later, you know what it says? They were haughty and did an abomination before me. Why is that significant? This is where it gets to intertextuality. This is an example of Ezekiel alluding back to another passage, specifically Leviticus. That word abomination is very significant. It's found throughout the Old Testament, but not, I mean, it's a very strong word reserved for certain sins. And one of those sins is homosexuality. And even more significant, this word abomination is often found in the plural. It's used, you know, talking about abominations, plural. It's, it's not used as often in the singular, where it's only mentioning this one sin is an abomination. And, what, and so then it narrows things down, and when it comes to the story of Sodom and lining it up to other things, like we don't have the Old Testament that calls gang rape an abomination, singular. We don't have the, the Old Testament calling inhospitality a, an abomination. But we do have the Old Testament calling same-sex relationships an abomination. So we find, you know, we find Ezekiel connecting the dots and saying the sin of Sodom is the same sin that we find in Leviticus. Well, how about that Hebrew word to know or yada? Well, it does sometimes, according to context, mean sexual intimacy. For example, in, a, in Genesis chapter 4, it says Adam knew his wife Eve. If that's all we had, we wouldn't know what's going on. It could be, you know, hi, my name's Adam, my name's Eve, you know, let's hang out, you know, let's play, you know, let's have play cards or whatever. But we have more than that where it says Adam knew his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. So is it that they were just, you know, hi, my name's Adam, my name's Eve. Oh, I'm sorry, you're pregnant? (laughs) Of course not. Of course not. If that's what you believe, come talk to me after class. (laughs) So we have context. How about in Genesis 19? Do we have that as well? We do. Because we have where it says, Lot's daughters never knew a man. It's the same verb that we find three verses before that where it says, bring these men out so we can know them. So when you find two verbs that are are the same words so close together, the definitions have to be the same. It can't be, you know, I want to just intellectually know you, relationally know you, and then the daughters also means the same thing. No, if it, I mean, I mean, what does it mean that, you know, Lot's daughters never knew a man? I mean, does it mean that you know, that they actually never met men before, you know, they didn't, there was no intellectual knowledge of men before, that they, you know, was that possible? I don't know, maybe they were homeschooled, I mean, that, you know, we don't know, we don't know, could be, but most likely, they knew men, they just never knew them intimately, They never knew them sexually. So clearly, there's a sexual connotation throughout this whole chapter and even going after. How many of you guys are familiar with what happens after Lot's Lot's wife dies, turns to a pillar of salt, salt, him and his daughters go off, and they go into the caves, and you remember what happens in the caves? Yes, I mean, it's like, let's all cringe at the same time, right? But let's put this in context. 
how in the world, I mean, people want to, you know, just sterilize that story and say there's nothing sexual going on here. If that were so, how in the world could two virgin daughters do that with their, with their dad if they did not, if they weren't raised in a city that was, repl- that was just full, full of sexual immorality? You following me? So, it, this, there's no doubt that sexual immorality was a big sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. However, if that's the only verse that we have or the only chapter we have and we don't have any of the passages, I think there would be more ambiguity. But fortunately, God didn't just give us Genesis 19. We have a lot more. So, Leviticus 19, uh, um, in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, this is... Uh, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. If there's a woman who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Sometimes people say that people will be stoned. There's nothing in here about, about stoning gays and lesbians. So, I, you know, I, don't, I have no idea where people come up with that because that's not found in, in, in this. It does say that they will be put to death. People admit, who are revisionists, that this is one of the hardest texts to go. I mean, it's as clear as, I mean, how much more clear can you get? A man lying with a male, that's bad. Uh, it, it, the, I, you see very little wiggle room. So revisionists admit that, that this is a hard text to get around. How do some explain this? Well, first of all, they will say, they will try to use context, and they will say this is not referring to monogamous same-sex relationships, this is referring to idolatry. How do they do that? If you go to the preceding verse in 1821, it says, don't sacrifice your child to Molech. Molech is a pagan god, and they would sacrifice children to this pagan god. So, they say, well, that's talking about idolatry, and so if the next verse is talking about homosexuality, then that must be talking about homosexuality in the context of idolatry, because that did happen as well. In other idol temples, not other than Molech, uh, like in Baal and Asheroth, they would sometimes go there. I mean, actually, not sometimes. A lot of times, their form of worship was sex. They called them fertility rites. And not only, most of the times, it was men going in there and having sex with the temple priestesses, but sometimes they would have men who work there, so it would sometimes be homosexual sex there as well. So revisions say that what's being condemned here is male temple prostitution in the, in the context of idolatry. In other words, monogamous same-sex relationship is okay, but not when it's done in a pagan temple. People will also say uh, that word abomination doesn't refer to immorality, it refers to uncleanness because, don't you know, Shellfish is also called an abomination, and we don't believe that anymore. How many of you guys like shellfish, right? I mean, you know, we eat crab and shrimp and all that, so if you eat shrimp and you still say homosexuality is an abomination, then you're a hypocrite. That's what revisionists will say. Or revisionists will just take the whole, you know, a a whole chunk of Leviticus, chapters 17 through 26, also known as the Holiness Code, and say those things referring to holiness are kind of uh, more ritual things, and those are ritual laws, and we don't follow those things, because there's things in there, for example, that we don't follow, like men in Israel, they were not supposed to touch their wife during that time of month. 
That was a no-no. You're not supposed to make different animals together. You're not supposed to mix seed or mix fabric. You're not supposed to cut the edges of your hair. You're not supposed to have tattoos. And so revisionists would say, look at all those things. Those are just kind of ridiculous things, and we don't follow those. So we shouldn't follow this law when it comes to homosexuality. So I'm going to go back and kind of respond to uh, these assertions. We find, um, is there any merit to the assertion that this law only refers to idolatry? The problem is, if it was referring to a male pagan temple prostitute, there's a specific Hebrew word for that. It's the Hebrew word kedeshim. We find that in Deuteronomy and in Job. We don't find Moses using that word. He, he could have used that easily, and if he was going to just condemn the male cultic prostitutes, he would have used that word. Instead, he, he uses the most universal way to say something. If a man lives the male, that's an abomination. And what revisionists want to do is they want to say this is not a universal condemnation. It's a very specific form of condemnation. You know what I mean? So it's not saying all same-sex relationships are sinful. They're just saying just certain forms of it. For example, gang rape. You know, same-sex gang rape is wrong or same-sex um, idolatrous sex is wrong. You see what I mean? So they're just trying to say it's, it's only this kind, not, over, you know, across. That's, it's not a universal condemnation. But the problem is it, when it comes to the sexual condemnations in Leviticus, you find that those are all universal. For example, Leviticus, the beginning of Leviticus 18, it spends a lot discussing incest. Is incest a universal condemnation? Yes, okay. Not a trick question. <laughs> Nothing tricky about that. <laughs> yes, it's a universal condemnation. And also, you know, if, if, if there's only you know, a restriction of only a certain form of that, not a universal condemnation, well, that should apply to the verse before. For example, sacrificing your child to Molech. So, in other words, you know, they're saying, you know, same-sex relationships in general are okay. It's, it's just not the idolatrous forms of it. So, if that were true, you know, they're, they're trying to take this, what's supposed to be universal, I'm trying to, no, it's only restricted. Well, that should apply to that passage pertaining to sacrificing your child to Molech. So, in that case, it's not a universal uh, condemnation to sacrifice your child. So it's okay to sacrifice your child. Just don't do it in the idolatrous context. Right? I mean, I know parents, you want to sacrifice your children at times, but it's always wrong. <laughs> always wrong. Uh, well, what about that word abomination? Does that only refer to uncleanness or does it refer to immorality? Well, it depends upon context because, in, for example, in Proverbs 6, where it says, the, Solomon writes, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are abomination. You find that all these things like a lying tongue, heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, dissension, these are all sins. They're not uncleannesses. And the word that's used to refer to the lobster, you know, shellfish, it's actually a different Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word sheketz, not the Hebrew word toavah. And there's a big difference. Toavah, the Hebrew word, is a strong word to refer to homosexuality and other uh, big sins. But it goes to the question. Remember at the very beginning I said, what does this Old Testament passage say and does it apply to us? 
So why is it that we are, we are able to eat unclean foods? Why is it that we can eat shrimp? Why is it that we can eat pork? Can we get an amen about for bacon? Amen. <laughs> why can we eat bacon? Many Christians don't know. And we should. We should be able to know. That second part of the question, why, does it apply to us today? Does this Old Testament passage apply to us today? And I can't answer the full thing, but I can at least partially answer. We know that a passage doesn't apply to us if the New Testament tells us. Because when you go to the New Testament, for example, in Acts chapter 10, where Peter gets that vision, remember that vision? Uh, a sheet falling down from heaven, I call it like the big picnic spread from heaven. And what's on it? Do you remember? All unclean animals, unclean foods, you know, and take and eat. All unclean foods. So I'm imagining like a big Chinese buffet. You know what I mean? All unclean? <laughs> and it's, you know, take and eat. You know, and Peter's like, I don't like Chinese. Um, and he's like, no, you know, nothing unclean has touched my lips. And then what does the voice from heaven say? Don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. What's going on here? The unclean laws have been fulfilled in Christ. Not abolished, fulfilled in Christ. The meaning of Acts 10 is not just, I mean, on the surface, it's saying that the unclean food laws have been fulfilled, but what's the, the, the big, profound meaning there? Is that we, as unclean Gentiles, are allowed into the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. I mean, if it wasn't for that, we would still be outsiders, all of us, right? I mean, I would say all of us are Gentiles. I mean, unless you are Jewish... We are unclean before Christ came. And when He came, He didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. Paul goes on to say that Jesus says even Himself in Matthew 15, it's not what goes into a mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of a mouth. Paul says, uh, you know, don't, don't destroy, uh, all food is clean. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. So we see the unclean laws have been fulfilled in Christ. So that's why we're able to do the things that the Bible says that is unclean. And that's the biggest point. How do we know the difference between unclean laws and moral laws? I mean, how do we differentiate? Look at the penalty. The penalty will guide us in what is a moral issue and what is not a moral issue. Look at the penalty. For example, um, the ones that were given. Uh, if a man has sex with his wife during that time of month, what's the penalty? Not death. Instead, he will be unclean for seven days. So, unclean for seven days compared to death. And of course, in, and of course, all these laws apply to Israel. So, you know, we have these laws that apply to Israel, ancient Israel, and so they would, uh, you know, they but of course, some of those laws from Israel apply to us today, to the law of Christ. 
And so how do we know what carry over? Well, we look at the ones that, that you know, where the penalty is death. Those are moral, those are universal uh, laws. But the ones that are unclean have been fulfilled in Christ. So, but, you know, unclean for seven days, he could go through after seven days a process of cleansing and he'd be back to normal. What's the penalty for uh, mixing seed in your field? Throwing out your crop, not death. What's the penalty for wearing clothes of mixed fabrics, throwing out your garment, not death? Or my favorite, what's the penalty if you eat unclean foods? You know what was the penalty? You'd be unclean until evening. So if you had a late night snack, it could be worthwhile. You know, you got to weigh your options. (laughs) But notice, notice it's not death. It's not death. But let's go then. Then what's the penalty for same-sex sex? Death. And we're afraid to say that sometimes because we seem uncaring. And the next question people ask is, well, then you're saying we need to put gays and lesbians to death. No, because judgment belongs to God. God is the one who will bring the ultimate judgment and punishment and the consequence, not us. But I'm going to say something that might sound radical. I do believe that the death penalty still stands and I'll, for this sin, and I'll tell you why. Because I read the New Testament, and you know what, what the New Testament says? The wages of sin is what? Death. So it doesn't matter whether you just said a white lie, or whether you gossiped or lusted or were jealous. We all deserve death. And that, my friends, is why we today still need a Savior. 2,000 years ago, they needed a Messiah. Today, we still need that same Messiah. Because, I mean, people ask, are you saying gays and lesbians, you know, should go to hell? And I said, you know what? We all deserve hell. We all do. I mean, I'm, I'm not being prejudiced here at all. You know, there is a democratization when it happens, when, 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 when we view us all as sinners. We all deserve the same judgment. But that's why Jesus came to take that judgment. That's the good news. That good news is not just for those in the gay community. This is for everyone. Um, well, so we go to uh, another thing is David and Jonathan. How many of you guys have heard this before? They were lovers. Look, look at these passages, and, and, and it's going to seem pretty convincing. Their love was more wonderful than that of women. Jonathan became one spirit. Wow, the two became one. Hmm, maybe. They took off their robe, and they kissed. Can I just say we live in a hypersexualized world? Well, I mean, why is it that two men, you know, they express their love for one another, and they're, they're gay? You know, I mean, even, even today, you know, it's so much a part of our culture in the secular world. Two guys, you know, show, you know, compassion or love for one another, and right away it's like, oh, no homo, right? As if you have to explain yourself that, oh, no, no, no. And that's so unfortunate that two men cannot love one another without people jumping to the conclusion that they're gay. Love doesn't equal sex. The world says it is. Actually, the world says the most deepest, most intimate form of love is sex. 
or the, even people will say love, the most deepest form of love is romance. It's not. As, as a matter of fact, after um, uh, the Supreme Court made that decision in 2015 to legalize same-sex marriage in 50 states, I wrote a response with my good friend Rosaria Butterfield, and, and we titled it Something Greater Than Marriage, because it, it was in response to the Supreme Court that said that marriage is the highest ideal of love. It's not. God is. God is. Love, marriage is an expression of love, but it is not the highest ideal of love. God is. I mean, think about that for a moment. All the religions in the world, they can claim their God is loving. No other religion claims that their God is love. It's an ontological reality of our God. That's a big difference. So, the love of two men doesn't have to be sexual. Uh, God's love is greater than anything in that. There's nothing sexual about that. And notice that even though they became one, they didn't become one flesh. If the Bible says they became one flesh, then we can assume that they had sex. It doesn't say that they became one spirit. Totally different, non-sexual meaning there. And if... <laughs> How many of you guys have heard of David before, King David? I mean, you know, you were probably in your Sunday school as a little kid, and you learned about David. David's issue was not men. <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, think about it. Think about it. I mean, it's, it's just ludicrous to think that, you know, that, that David was gay. If he was gay... And if he was on that rooftop on that fateful night and he happened to find Bathsheba bathing and he was gay, he wouldn't say, she's hot, I want to have sex with her. He wouldn't, no. Maybe he would say, you know, I love her robe, you know, who's her decorator, but not, I want to have sex with her. It's just so outside the realm of reality and possibility. Also, um, one thing that's mentioned is slavery. I hear this so often. The Bible condones slavery. Slavery is wrong, which it is. And the Bible is, has been wrong on slavery. The church has been wrong on slavery. So, therefore, the Bible and the church has, all, has also been wrong on homosexuality. That's usually how the logic goes. Not good logic, but that's usually how their logic goes. What we miss, first of all, slavery, modern slavery is reprehensible and it's wrong. What we need to realize is the Bible's definition of slavery is not exactly the same thing. Slavery in the ancient Near Eastern world and slavery in the Greco-Roman world, that word slave in Greek can also mean bondservant, the Greek word doulos. And slavery had a broader definition. In our modern world, slavery meant it was, it was um, lifelong, you could not become unslaved. I mean, you were slave for life, uh, and um, oftentimes it was focused on one people group. You were treated subhuman. That form of slavery is wrong. It's not voluntary. It was treating people, you know, bad. In the ancient Near Eastern world, did they have that form of slavery? Yes, of course they did. But slavery also meant other things. It also meant voluntary slavery, where if you fell upon bad times, I would find a good, good master, a good 
worker, a good owner or a good Lord, and I would sell myself to him, but I would still get rights, and oftentimes I would get paid still. And I would even have freedoms. Actually, the closest form of that form of slavery today is the military. I was in the Marine Corps. And during those years that I was in the Marine Corps, you know who I belonged to? Uncle Sam. I got paid. I wasn't free from eight to five every, you know, every day of the week. If I wasn't somewhere where I wasn't supposed to be, I'd be in trouble. I'd be, I'd be thrown in the brig. But after that, I could do whatever. I mean, after, you know, five o'clock, I, I, I would have, I had, I was on my own. But I still belong to the government. That's a closer form of slavery. So when we think about, and, and, and if we wanted to abolish slavery in the ancient world, that would abolish all the ways, that was the safety net of, of the ancient world back then. So, so we need to understand modern slavery is not the same thing as ancient slavery. Um, and actually, the Bible is critical against slave trade. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, not every tra translation gets this right. Sometimes they use the word kidnap. That's not the correct word. It's actually man-stealing, and they give the death penalty for those who are caught in slave trade. I just wonder if we actually got that Bible translation correct, we, do, we would have changed Western history for the good. It's really unfortunate. I mean, that's why Bible translation is so important that we get it right. Let's now move on to the New Testament. Jesus, um, it's often said that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. You guys hear that before? Jesus, you know, Jesus was silent on homosexuality. If you've ever done any type of uh, debating, you always learn you never argue from silence. That's a good lesson to learn. You never argue from silence. Because if you did, I could argue that Jesus also condoned incest. Did Jesus ever mention anything in the Gospels? Do we have anything recorded about incest? No. How about bestiality? We don't have that either. You never make an argument from silence unless you have an explanation for why the writer or, the, you know, or someone like Jesus was silent about it. And we do have a reason. Why would Jesus not say anything about incest in first century Israel? Because no one questioned it. I mean, you, won't find, you wouldn't find any first century Jew in, in Israel who was like, hmm, I wonder if incest is okay. You just wouldn't find that. I wonder if bestiality is okay. No, there was no question. So therefore, Jesus didn't have to say anything about it because Everyone, it was, everyone agreed that it was wrong. Same thing with homosexuality. There was never any question that homosexuality was sinful. And because there was no... I mean, you can read all the extra-biblical literature. You can all read all the rabbinic writings. They never questioned. It was universally condemned, same homosexuality. So Jesus did not need to say it. And let's just say you know, let's just for argument's sake say that he did not think that same-sex relationships were... He thought that, you know, it was okay. If so, he would have corrected. I mean, he would have spoken up, but he didn't. He did speak up about all the misunderstandings about the Sabbath, remember? I mean, he, he corrected their misunderstanding. If he thought that they were wrong, I think he would have spoken up, but he didn't. But he didn't. Instead, Jesus affirmed sexual purity. 
Like the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if a man looks lustfully after a woman, he has just committed adultery. He raised the bar for the standard for sexual purity. He didn't lower it. In addition, Jesus talks in Mark 10 and Matthew chapter 19, where when he's asked about divorce, you know what was his answer? He actually, instead of saying divorce is wrong, which, is, which it is, but he actually said, he affirmed that marriage is between a man and a woman. He said, in the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and the two shall become one flesh. What God has put together, let, man, let not man put, a, put us under, right, or separate. So, so Jesus, in his view of marriage, he had a high view of marriage, and how he defined marriage, he went back to Genesis, and he quoted from Genesis 2, that the two shall become one flesh, but also from Genesis 1, talking about in the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, which is from the image of God. Romans 1 is the passage that says, God handed them over to shameful lust. Even women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. So, this is the only passage that actually talks about women and women having sex. It goes on, uh, in the same way men were abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. So, this, the, the kind of debate over this is what does Paul mean when he's talking about natural? What is natural and what is unnatural? You know, we, we say, well, natural means, you know, man and woman. Unnatural is not a man and woman. I mean, that seems kind of logical. What was Paul talking about? Revisionists will argue with that, and they say that's not what Paul is talking about. For them, unnatural means going against one's natural orientation. So, it's turned more into a feeling. So, if, you know, for an individual, if they are naturally heterosexual and they have homosexual sex, that is what Paul is condemning. And, and they get very nuanced in their argument. You know, and I hear that word nuanced a lot, and sometimes I'm like, we don't need more nuance, we just need more of Jesus. <laughs> we just need more biblical truth. But they'll give all these nuanced reasons, and, and actually, I mean, sometimes it can be like, oh, well, that sounds, that sounds, you know, I don't know how to respond to that. Because there, there is a, the, uh, back in, in, the early, in the first century, the Greek philosophers, they saw what was going on in, in the Greco-Roman world where there was a lot of promiscuity, and they would see these men that would be having lots and lots of sex with women, you know, these orgies and all that stuff. I mean, that was what the Romans did. And after a while, the, the, these men would not only have sex with uh, women, but they would also have, start having sex with men, and I mean, anything else. That was just in the Greco-Roman world. So, the philosophers would say, so what you see is with, when these men were just inflamed with lust, with women, they would begin having sex with men. So, so that's how the argument goes that they say that's what Paul is talking about. Is there any merit to this? This is probably the best example of intertextuality. Paul, when he was talking about, um, there's these huge allusions between Romans 1 and Genesis 1. Let me just show you just this, just this one chart here. Eight different times we find where Paul in Genesis, uh, Genesis I mean, where in Romans 1, Paul is referring back to Genesis. And you might, those of you that know Greek or that don't know, these are Greek words and these are Greek words too. You might think, wait, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But 300 years before Jesus came, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek Old Testament. Anyone know what, what that's called? 
Septuagint, good. So the Septuagint, you see Paul is actually quoting from the, I mean, look at this. I mean, it's just like one by one, they're, they're going back and forth. Many of these words are identical. Some of them are very similar. And why, why was Paul doing that? Not a fluke accident. Not just like, oh my goodness, wow, what a coincidence. No. Not eight times. Very intentional. This is such a great example of intersexuality. Why was Paul doing that? Why was Paul kept pointing back from Romans 1, pointing back to Genesis 1? Because what Paul was doing is saying that we are going against God-created order. So what's natural mean? It's, it's not like the um, kind of the, the, the Greek philosophical concept of natural, like just like in nature, what we see out in nature. For Paul, natural meant according to God's created order from Genesis. That's what Paul means from natural. So, uh, and also by, Paul uses this word male and female, and that's also words that you find in Genesis. Um, and, and that's the meaning there. Also, other other writers around the time of Paul use that same word of natural and unnatural to refer to male and female sexuality and male and male and female and female sex. We're going to end with this, 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. Uh, what you find here are lists of sins, but there's one word in particular that's the one of debate, and it turns out to be a compound word that we don't find before the New Testament is written. So that's problematic because the question is, what does it mean? It's a compound word, but we don't know the meaning of it because it's not used before the New Testament. So revisionists say it doesn't mean homosexuality. It doesn't, it's not referring to monogamous same-sex relationships. Instead, it's referring to pedophilia. When we break the two words down, it means male and bed. The problem is, again, they're forgetting about intertextuality. Like, this is the key thing. If you don't remember anything, it's intertextuality. It's canonical interpretation. What, if Paul was creating a new word, which he might have, a compound word, would he just throw it out there just, like, to confuse you? No. He would want it to be a word that you guys would catch and know. And the main book that first century Christians read was the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. And when you look at these two words, you will find that these two words occur where else other than Leviticus. Paul is referring back to Leviticus. Remember at the very beginning I said those two questions, what does this Old Testament passage mean? And second, does it apply to us today? Well, how do we know whether it applies to us? if the New Testament says so. So, if a New Testament writer pulls something from the Old Testament and said, this applies to us today, then we know that law still remains. The law from Leviticus that Paul is pulling back refers to, how do we know that? These two words, male and bed, are words that we find in Leviticus. Actually, these two words only occur six times, and every time it means when a person lies or has sex with men. If Paul wanted to refer to pedophilia, there's a different word for that, um, which he didn't use here. And I'd like to just finish with this verse, but since we're looking at 1 Corinthians 6, at the very end, we have this verse in verse 11, one of my favorite verses, such were 
some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. That's the good news, my friends. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how good you are to us. Lord, help us um, just be centered on your gospel in everything that we do. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to jump into some, also my books are in the back with, uh, my, I think my dad will be back there. We're going to do some questions and answers. Text your ans- uh, questions if you would like, uh, numbers at the bottom, and um, we're going to start off with some kickoff questions. Um, first kickoff question, and thank you so much. This was very wonderful. Do you all agree? Yeah? <laughs> First, first kickoff question actually is someone was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about your books in the back. What are the two books sure, they would like to know? Sure, great. So um, the, the, I have the book that, that's the book that I wrote with my mom. It's the yellow book, the mustard book. Um, and that's my story in that I also present um, the idea, the concept of holy sexuality, which... Um, I'm gonna, so if you guys are able, come back tomorrow, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that concept of holy sexuality. I'm also going to talk about how do we have a more gospel-centered response. Uh, how, how do we respond to our, our friends and loved ones who are gay, our neighbor or, or whoever? How do we share Christ with them? How do we walk with believers who have same-sex attractions? They don't want to act on it. How do we help them? How do we walk with them? Um, but anyway, my, this first book is... Uh, our story, uh, my, our journey of faith, um, it, it's, it's a great way that people, you know, the gospel is shared in there, um, so people sometimes use it to, to, you know, give it to unbelievers and friends who, who they want to know Christ. Um, this is a, there's a, also a discussion guide that people use to, to, to talk through it. The, I have another book that I don't have the slide up, but it's blue and kind of a, like a kaleidoscope looking front. Um, it's much more uh, technical. It's my doctoral dissertation, so it's not going to read as fun as this book. Uh, you know, this is will go by fast. That won't. Um, however, it's it's very relevant to the Christian College campus. My doctoral research was was about sexuality on the Christian College campus. So the whole, my doctoral dissertation title is, and it's long because if you're going to have a dissertation title, you want it to be long. Um, it's giving a voice to the voiceless. That's a short one. That's the sub. That's the title. The sub. The, the, the title. The subtitle is enormous. It is. It's a qualitative study on reducing marginalization of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and same-sex attracted students at Christian colleges and universities. Super long, right? Insane. I tried to shorten it. Didn't work. Um, but it was addressing the problem that on Christian college campuses and churches where I find that people who have, have same-sex attractions are so afraid to, to open up about their struggle. And, and people might think, well, why should they? I mean, wh- you know, wh- wh- why, why do they have to be open about it? Well, I, I really believe that Satan works best in secrecy, in darkness. He wants to isolate us. And um, I don't think any of us should should have to struggle with our sin alone. That's, that's not how God, God gave us the church, not so that we can isolate ourselves in the church and not open up with each other, but we need other brothers. We need other sisters to walk with us. 
Um, but we can't do that if there's a huge stigma on, you know, we can share about anything else. We can share about pornography addictions. We can share about an eating disorder, whatever. But when it comes to same-sex relationships, there are still Christians who feel like, I cannot share this with my Christian friends. Uh, so I found that as a problem, and my research was actually interviewing over about 80, uh, not, not myself, but it was an online questionnaire. It was a qualitative, open, open-ended question about um, how we can improve our, our Christian college campuses. So that's my research uh, on that. Thank you. We uh, also have like Korean, Spanish, and Chinese, I think, uh, of, of, of that book. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's lots of questions coming in. If you can't read the number, it's 403-412-4298. Um, a lot of the questions are more sort of ethical, relational questions. Uh, the first one we have here is, do you have a theology of weddings? A close lesbian friend is getting married. What do you think about me, a Christian who loves them but disagrees with the decision, going to the wedding or standing up in it? Yeah, so um, I, I think um, the, the important thing when it comes to our friend is usually, I mean, there's a tension. I want my, my gay friend to know what I believe. Not simply about morality, but I want them to know I believe in a triune God. I believe that Jesus Christ is his son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I mean, these things, you know, I believe that uh, we're all sinners, that Jesus came to die for our sins. He came to be the propitiation, propitiation for our sins, that we become righteous because of him. Um, and, you know, you know do they, and they don't have to understand all of that. I guess I threw out some big, big words. But just generally, do they know that we believe in God, we're all sinners, and Jesus is our Savior? I mean, that, that would be kind of the basic things. And then also, I mean, maybe secondarily, that we believe in, in biblical sexuality. Do they know that? But the second thing is, do they know we still love them? Because if you don't go boy, it's clear what you believe, right? But it definitely is misunderstood in most situations that we still love them. If you do go, let's say, it's clear you love them, but it could be misunderstood what you believe. So you see how these two can be in tension? Um, my answer is a non-answer. I, I, it's very clear that same-sex sex is sin, same-sex relationships are sinful, and also then, therefore, same-sex marriage is sinful. That, that's clear. The, the next question, though, is, is being present at a wedding sinful? Is it celebrating sin if I'm there? Generally speaking, uh, most people who go to weddings are there to celebrate and affirm a wedding. I mean, if you go to any wedding, I mean, you're there to celebrate with them. Um, I, I'm, I'm giving it because it, but it's much more complicated than, than that. Um, I, I believe that you need to really pray and fast about this, thinking about those two things. Do they know what we believe? Do they, do they still know that we love them? If God is telling you you cannot go because going is obviously, you know, going to your presence will communicate that you are affirming of this, this union of two people that God doesn't bless. You don't go, and this is a good friend. I would strongly suggest that you don't tell them through a text, 
an email or over the phone. I think I would do, I mean, because it's so important that it, had, it, has great, it can have great implications on your relationship with them, future relationship, is that I would do it in person. Like, go the extra mile to, to actually face-to-face tell them and how torn you are about this and, and how this is a really, really difficult decision. But, you, you know, it's, your conscience is, uh, it, but, but you have to go according to your conscience. Um, I would take them out to a nice dinner and tell, you know, whatever. Even I would bring their partner too. I mean, we want their partner to know Christ. And maybe you might be the only Christian that their partner even knows. So, um, I, I, I think it's a very difficult decision. Uh, generally, w- we would say that people who go to a wedding are there to affirm. However, I think we need to also realize that not necessarily everyone who goes to a wedding is there to affirm. For example, in-laws. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I mean, weddings happen, and not always do the parents agree, but they're still there. And they've communicated to the husband and wife, to the bride and groom, that they don't approve of the wedding, but they're still there. And the bride and groom know that they're not there because they're celebrating or affirming of it. So, I'm not saying then, therefore, you should go. All I'm saying is your presence doesn't necessarily mean affirmation. However, there's then, I'm just, I'm I'm complicating things for you. there's an added layer in that for Christians, marriage doesn't mean just a, cele- you know, just a celebration or just, you know, there's the God aspect, the union of two people done in a holy place, done before His holy people, and it, the people who are in, I mean, who are there at the wedding are there not just to celebrate, but they're, they're actually to be uh, witnesses to hold the couple accountable to their vows, right? I mean, that's when I go to that. That's why I'm there. So I personally, I wouldn't be able to go and be at the ceremony, especially if it's done at a church, especially and even if it's a liberal church. You know, I, I would not be able to do that uh, and and pretend. You know, or, or it would. I know that's not something that God would bless, and that would be. Uh, I don't, you know, that, that would be really difficult for me. Uh, standing in a wedding, I think, would be really difficult, uh, or not even difficult. I, I think in, being in the wedding party is uh, affirming of, of that. Now, I think if it's a friend, it's a little easier to say no. Um, I just know of situations where you have fathers and mothers who their son or daughter is getting married, and just them not going is, would be just literally the end of the relationship. So, I know of parents who are just really, really torn. And um, so, so, that's why I don't, I can't make that decision for you. And this could be even a really, really close friend where it's like, you know, it, you're not going or a really close cousin, whatever it is. I can't say you have to go or you can't go, um, but I do want to say that there are different, there are different options. I know of parents where they said, I, I just cannot go, it's even done in a church, and they've decided that they wouldn't go to the ceremony, but they would go to the reception. It's a free meal, why not, right? <laughs> they, would do, um, they would also make sure uh, that, you know, little things like they would, you know, a toast to the couple. Well, that's clearly something that, you know, you're assenting to the union of the couple. I wouldn't be able to do the toast. Um, or you know, if 
going through the line, congratulations, I wouldn't congratulate them, but I would say, I love you. I mean, you, you know, you affirm the person, you're not necessarily affirming the couple. I would not get them one gift for the couple, I would get them two individual gifts, get them something really significant that, that is meaningful. Maybe get them my book, you never know, God could use it. <laughs> so I think that there are definitely options. I, I don't say, you know, one way or the other, uh, but I do think that you really need to pray and fast and seek God's counsel. Thank you. Um, just so everyone knows, uh, Pam just told me we're getting a flood of questions. We probably won't get to them all tonight. That's a great problem to have. Yes. So if we don't get to them all tonight, we're going to give you the list of questions, okay. and yeah. then maybe you can address them during the talk tomorrow. Okay. Okay. Uh, next question. Are yes. you ready for it? Sure. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> How do we make our children, friends, or peers feel comfortable talking to us about their sexuality without affirming same-sex relationships? So, well, I, I think it's, um, we have to learn to be good listeners, and we need to realize that listening isn't equivalent to affirming. Just listening to someone's story doesn't mean that you agree. And um, listening and even uh, not correcting them also doesn't mean that you're agreeing with them. I think if we, uh, the most important thing that if I have an opportunity to talk to uh, someone who's gay and they're telling me their story, I don't, want that, I don't want the first thing that I say to them or bring up is that they're living in sin. The first thing that I want to talk to them is about God. You know, I, I think that we we know that Pharisees are Pharisees, and Jesus came to condemn them, but sometimes we fall into Pharisaic ways, and we, we focus so much on the law and on morality where it's, morality is not going to save you. Moral, it, not, it, not that morality is not important. We, of course, we need to follow God's will and God's laws, but it's Jesus first, and it's through a relationship with Jesus that we're able to be holy, not the other way around. Um, so, I, I think that with a friend, I think it's totally okay just to listen to um, your gay friend and their stories, and I mean, and, and just have a conversation. I, I would always, instead of always looking for ways to tell them that homosexuality is sin, I would always be looking for in, inroads or ways or segues to talk about God and talk about Jesus Christ. That has to be first always. I did not I, I didn't, you know, come to a realization that same-sex relationships was sinful first. I, it was getting to know God first and Jesus Christ first. That has to be a primary thing. I, I, my point is not saying that this is not sin or you never talk about that. I'm just saying we have to do something first. Um, so, with the friend, I, I even give some suggestions. If you have a gay friend that's always, you know, telling you stories, maybe even telling you about their, their partner, their gay partner, and that, you know, you might say, I don't know what to say, because you, normally, like other, maybe it's a coworker, and other coworkers would say, oh, I'm so happy for you, right? I mean, that's usually when, when you have people talking about someone they're dating or someone that they met, you're like, oh, I'm so happy for you. Well, I can't say that. That's an obvious statement of affirmation. But what you can say is, um, I see that this person makes you happy. That's not affirming. That's just, you're just repeating, you're just uh, expressing their, 
they're, you know, a, a fact of what you see. I mean, that, that's their, ex, uh, you know, experience. Um, or, I, or you could say, instead of saying happy, you could say, I see, I see this person is important to you. Um, you know, I see that this person makes you happy or makes you sad, whatever it is. And, and that at least is affirming of their experience, and that's just as important. Um, next question. I have a friend who is gay. He has been praying and begging God to change him from feeling attraction to guys. He is so disappointed in himself. How would you encourage him? Well, I would first, um, you know, tell him that God, um, heterosexuality will not get you into heaven. That's one of the first things. Um, so don't pray that God will make you heterosexual or God will take that away. I mean, Paul prayed and prayed and prayed for God to take his thorn in the flesh away, and God didn't for one reason, so that Paul will come to the realization that what? My grace is sufficient. We, um, God did not call us to live an easy life, um, but he called us to, to be, live a holy life, and that will be, you know, with struggles. And, uh, and that doesn't seem very hopeful for this guy, but I, I want him to know that he's no different from anyone else. Um, if we work with a guy who's struggling with pornography, you know, is, are we telling that guy to pray that he never lusts after women again? I mean, I think we should pray that, but that's not like, you know, a, a, a realistic expectation. I mean, it, with, if, if, and, and there's, you know, a lot of men that I know that are struggling with pornography. And, and what I tell them is, don't give in. <laughs> You will be tempted. Be prepared, you will be tempted. But don't give in. God has given us the Holy Spirit, and we can be victorious. Um, and, and, I mean, it's, that sounds simple, but, but I want him to know that he's no different from any other, other person, man or woman. He's a, a, a person who struggles with our sin nature. Um, but don't pray for something that isn't what God wants us for us. Um, focus on being, being holy. Mm -hmm. And give him my book. Watch, you know, or, or show him some of my videos. Hopefully, because I think if he sees someone who's who's kind of walked in his shoes, you know, that that's sometimes encouraging. Are your videos on YouTube? Where do yeah, people my, find my your website? ChristopherYuan.com. I have okay. a few video, videos. Uh, I have like a a, a a YouTube channel that just has a few of my uh, web uh, videos. Just YouTube.com forward slash ChristopherYuan. Um, this is a question that refers back to what you talked about this morning. Mm -hmm. You said it's the parents' job to teach their kids about sexuality, but not all parents will do that. Yes. So is there a role for pastors and youth pastors to play in that area? If so, what would that look like? Well, of course. I, I, I think that um, pastors and youth pastors, we know that not all pa parents are doing that, unfortunately. Um, so I do believe that sometimes youth pastors should be the ones that are supplementing, but as we know that because not many parents are doing that, that supplement turns into the only teaching on biblical sexuality that they get. So that's really unfortunate. But I think as a youth pastor, a difficult part of their job is actually uh, ministering to the parents and actually training the parents of what they need to do. Um, uh, for, for a while, when I would speak at churches, churches would want me to speak to the youth, you know, fix those youth. And 
And I, would, I did that for a while, but I actually, my parents and I, we have, have a policy where we don't do that anymore because we don't find that to be effective. We need to talk to the whole body. Actually, most important, we need to talk to the parents because uh, we want to equip the parents who then can go to talk about sexuality with their kids later. Um, I think we'll do, this next question is another text question, okay. and then maybe we'll just see if there is one or maybe two questions from the audience okay. for you, and then we'll wrap up. Sure. Does that sound good? Whatever you want. Whatever you want. I'm good. <laughs> okay. I'm good. I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> All right. This next question is, many people have asked questions about Christians in leadership roles who disagree with the traditional view of sexuality and marriage. Uh, can you give us advice on how to approach the conversation in a good way with people who might disagree with the traditional view? Yeah, sure. I would, I would say the, most of the time where people who hold to a gay-affirming view, um, it never really is about sexuality. It's almost always about biblical authority. Every time. When you look at all the denominations that have changed, is the issue sexuality? No. Biblical authority, every single time without question. Look at the PCUSA, ELCA, Episcopal Church. They've walked away from biblical authority not just a few years ago, decades ago, decades ago. And so we're, they're just reaping the rotten fruit of a low view of Scripture. So it's, you know, it's not so surprised. So when you see individuals who are, have embraced that, uh, don't even talk about sexuality because that's, that's not the issue. It's a symptom. Don't address the symptom. Address the core issue. And that core issue is biblical authority. When you have a low view of Scripture, that changes the gospel. The gospel, talk about the gospel as well. What you find their view of the gospel is not the gospel that Paul preached or Jesus preached. It's not about sinful man in need of a Savior. It's about just being good. Do good things be a social justice warrior and, you know, do all these great things and then you'll save the world and that's not why Jesus came to die. If, if, if it was about doing good things, Jesus wouldn't need to die on the cross. Uh, and, and plus, what you'll find in, in most of these, you know, the gay-affirming churches and these church leaders, people, you know, church leaders, Christian leaders who say uh, that same-sex relationships are okay, you will almost never find repentance in their message. Ever. It's repent, calling repentance of others, but never personal repentance. You have no gospel if there's no repentance. Um, so that's, that's pretty key. Okay, I said that would be the last text that's one, okay. but this is one on a different vein, so I think we should ask it. Sure. Uh, my friend says that if I don't support same-sex marriage, I'm saying that gay people don't deserve the same rights as heterosexuals. How do I respond to them? Well, if this was five years ago, I would say um, it might be a little bit more difficult, um, but we're in a new world. Canada is ahead of America and has passed same-sex marriage already, right, federally. Um, I, I think it's kind of a moot, moot point now. I mean, if, if people, I would just say it's already passed. I mean, I just, I just, I don't let people to you know, well, do you think it's right or wrong? And I say, well, it's already legal, so it doesn't really matter what I think right now. It doesn't, unfortunately. I voted, you know, I voted against it. But, uh, it, I mean, it, in, uh, in Canada, did it go through the courts and it became legal that way, or was it voted? It went through the courts? Yeah, which is 
you know, so if you can't get it through the votes, get it through the courts. Same thing like the U.S. Um, and, uh, which is crazy, you know, you don't make law by the courts. That's just what the legislative branch is supposed to do. Um, and um, so I, I just kind of just, I don't let people like, I just say it's, it's already law. Um, I, I, I think just go to the next question and push it back in their court with saying, so now that it's passed, um, what are people going to do? Well, b before I ask that, what is Canada's uh, um, protection on um, religious liberty and freedom? Right, so, so how is it worded precisely? Is it, but like in the U.S., it's, we have fairly, I think the strongest, I think, in the world of protecting specifically uh, uh, freedom of religion. What, how is it worded in the Canadian Constitution, or is it not really? Of course, yeah. <laughs> yes. You, you, are, you are so true, as it is in the U.S., because it can be worded one way, and people, yeah, they, what, what are words, right? <laughs> so, um, I, I, so, in other words, uh, Canada's view of uh, freedom of religion is, is different from the U.S., I mean, where I think is, there's right now a little bit more protection, and I think in Canada it's, it's less, right? So it's, um, but, but I would ask um, the, the friend and throw it in their court and say, um, how would, now that it's passed, you know, okay, it's, it's passed, and a, a lot of people are celebrating, how would that passing of that protect um, a Muslim, and use Muslim, because that's the, everyone loves Muslims now, Christians are bad, Muslims are good, um, and I mean, I'm, I'm being facetious, I, I'm not I'm not at all bashing, I'm just, I'm just saying, I mean, just use that as an example, because if you use a Christian, then that you know, but, but anyway, use the Muslim as an example and say, how would uh, the passing of same-sex marriage uh, protect a Muslim practice who believes that, um, who doesn't agree with that? And just throw it in their court and see how they, how, how they would respond. Um, I, I, I think the best way to, to respond to difficult questions is to respond with a question. Because I think the next battle now is, is religious freedom. And, and, and of course, the U.S. is following Canada's lead on that, and, and I do believe uh, we won't see, um, in the U.S., we will not see freedom of religion anymore. Freedom of religion, uh, most of the European countries, and maybe can Canada's kind of like that, it's maybe more of freedom of worship. I don't know if, how it's worded, but uh, it's funny. Uh, the, 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 we have the conservative politicians they're all not perfect, but uh, the conservative ones are more protection of religious freedom, but the, the not conservative uh, politicians, they're, they're trying to change the wording, where it's clearly in the U.S. freedom of religion. That's part of our Constitution, but they're trying to reinterpret that to not freedom of religion, but freedom of worship. That might sound the same, but you know what's the difference? Freedom of religion is daily, day-to-day this is my religion. This is what I daily practice. Freedom of worship is only practicing the, the time, the place that you worship, and that's it. So, so if I, like in the U.S., I can go and evangelize on the streets. In other countries, you can't do that. Like, I don't know, in Europe, I don't, I don't, I don't think that that's protected. So, um, but I would say that's the next battle that we have. Uh, you know, the same-sex marriage thing is already over, so it's a moot point. I just don't get into arguments on that anymore. I, I, I'm not for it, but 
if I say that, I'm going to get into arguments and, and build a wall. So I just say, you know, it's already passed. So, you know, that's, that's not a, an issue anymore. I, that's, that's what I would say. Yes? Interesting. So if I'm unconscious, does that not protect me? <laughs> is that the charter? Is that the, uh, the, the Canadian Constitution? Or Okay. Okay. So, it's, so it does say freedom of, of conscience and religion. And I think I even read somewhere that, that, that they are trying to change that or something. But yeah, it's, it's funny how people will change, change words. Um, so we really appreciate you, we really like you, and we know you have a lot coming up after a visit. So uh, feel free to keep texting questions if you have them. We'll pass them on to Dr. Yuan. But we don't want to uh, be unfair to the people who don't have smartphones. So we're curious, our Mac is on that side with a microphone and I have one on this side. Is there anyone who has a question who wasn't able to text it in? Now we'll take two questions. Uh, who wants to be brave and ask something in front of everyone? He's really nice and gracious, as you can see. Right, sorry. Uh, it's unfortunate that everybody didn't hear you this morning. Mm. So I'm just wondering if you have on video or on tape your testimony of this morning or similar to that? Yes, I do have it. Um, and was it recorded? It was. Yeah, it's, it's recorded as a podcast, right? All right. And it's on the Prairie website, so you can go on there and you can listen to it. Yes, it's on the Prairie website. Yep. And also on my website, I, I do have my testimony. Um, YouTube channel is also uh, actually, if you go to my YouTube channel, you can, you can see my family's testimony. So my dad, my mom, and I, we will be sharing as well. Yes. I'm sorry, it's the same question, but I'm from South Korea, and I have, like, South Korea is having a hard time with that um, homosexuality um, problem as well. So I wonder if you have a Korean version of your um, speaking or something like that. Um, I, only of our book. Our book is in Korean. I don't know if any of my talks have subtitles. I've had people that just, I find things online, I was like, oh, there's a Japanese subtitle of my talk, and there's a Chinese one, and there's, you know, <laughs> Spanish, and I think there was one that's with Portuguese, but um, I don't know if I've seen one that's in Korean. I've spoken at Korean churches before. Um, I spoke at Sarang in Los Angeles, the big one. Um, and I, so I need to see if they, they still have that recorded. If maybe you can e email me, and then my assistant can contact that church and then find out the contact, and then you can maybe contact them. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Just put up your hand. If you have an urgent question that wasn't asked, you can just. Yeah. All right. Right here? Oh, your hand wasn't high enough for me. <laughs> I don't know if you know much about what's happening in Alberta right now, but there's a, um, a lot of talk about the gay-straight alliances that are in our schools and that they're being mandated in our schools. Um, what do you see as the potential dangers in them? Well, 
I know that um, gay-straight alliances have been around for a long time, maybe even two decades. I know definitely a decade and a half. Um, I, I don't know if the actual club will make much, um, much of a difference in that um, the mindset is already there. Um, you know, I, I, I just see so much in our public school system where um, postmodernism has been taught for since I was in grade school. We just didn't know it. And one of the fathers of postmodernity, uh, the French philosopher Michel Foucault, he was an openly gay man, died of AIDS, and his biggest thing was um, saying that there are no um, there are no binary systems, and and it's because I, I think because of mainly what the concepts that he was teaching that we're, where we're at today in regards to the spectrum of LGBTQIA, et cetera. Um, queer theory, uh, transgenderism is, is a result, I think, of Michel Foucault, that there is no male or female, it's only social constructs. So I, I, I think it's just more systemic. I, I don't know if I see the problem as much being the groups on campus, but just what's being taught across the board. I think that we need to be more involved in, um, in, in the school systems. Uh, we need to hopefully get more Christians that are there. Um, we need to be involved in the boards, uh, raising our kids. We, we, you know, sending our kids there. We need to uh, be, but, but. Also, not just fighting, but showing that, like, there are things that we can agree with a gay-straight alliance. For example, just bullying in general. I, I don't want any kid to be bullied and make sure that um, we're not fighting that. We're just agreeing with that. We're, you know, that's um, depression and suicide. You know, that's, that's something that we can totally, I don't want to see any kid attempt suicide. I mean, we have an epidemic in a, in a I don't, it's just, it's, it's horrible, but it's, it's sad too that kids see that as an option. I, when I grew up, I mean, that, that was, and I never, you know, when you, know, when, when you guys grew up, there, that wasn't an option. I mean, I, I, I not to minimize suicidality, but um, I, I, it's, it's sort of a first world country. You know, I mean, you go to China, they're not thinking about killing themselves, they're just trying to survive. Um, you're, you don't find suicide rates, you know, high in Africa or whatever. They're just trying to survive, and we're, we're just a little... Anyway, but that's my whole... I don't want to go down that road, but I, I do... I think we need to agree to, to address these issues, so there are parts where we can agree with them on, on those points. Um, and uh, so not show that we're, you know, that we're like these irrational, hateful people know that we, we do, that there are parts where we can agree and, and actually find some commonality to hopefully be able to share our faith, and this is why we believe. We don't just believe in these bunch of rules. So, I don't know. I, I think that the, the gay-straight alliance is, it's kind of like the same-sex marriage. It's kind of like it's already there. Um, it's, 
whether we want it or not, I feel like that's kind of already a lost battle. And so I feel like now it's like, now it's already there. How do we move forward? Um, I, I think that we should, uh, you know, if they're going to have these groups, then see if we can have also some Christian groups, you know, that run by students. You know, these Gay Straight Alliance is something, not as a counter, but just as, you know, there, there, there needs to be a place where, um, uh, you know, there can be some light that these students can be able to, be, to, to freely express their religious beliefs at a place. And, and if we're supposed to be, you know, tolerant of, of um, our conscience and unconsciousness, uh, that, that there needs to be where if we're going to be tolerant and, and approving of the Gay-Straight Alliance, you know, then it should be that, uh, you know, a Christian group, you know, and a, and a Muslim group. I mean, I, I would be the first to support that they have a Muslim group too. You know, I mean, we're, um, we can't pick and choose what, what is, I, I, that's what I kind of think. I mean, if we're going to have that, then um, we should have, you know, other groups as well. I think that will wrap up our questions for the evening. Can you briefly tell us a little bit about the talk you'll be giving here tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock? Yes. So in chapel, I'm going to give a talk about um, how we as the church, there's some, there's some places that we need to improve. We've had some um, ideas and paradigms that we've assumed to be true just because that's just what we've believed for so long. And, um, and I think that that can be helpful in our way that we approach uh, the issue of homosexuality. Um, and so it's going to be much more practical. This was, I'm, hopefully I didn't just kill you guys, but this talk was much more heady, much more technical. Uh, tomorrow will be a, a bit more practical and, and helpful on how do we just love our gay neighbors? How do we point them to Christ? How do we help Christians who struggle with same-sex attractions? And everyone is welcome to come to that again. So students and our community members and friends, please feel free to come here tomorrow. You're all welcome to be here. Uh, to close, we wanted to pray for you and with you and as part of a way of saying thank you. Uh, do you all mind just standing with me while we pray for Dr. Duran? Can I put my hand on Father, Thank you so much for the story you're telling in Christopher's life. Thank you for his parents, for the redemption you've worked in their family. Thank you for the goodness and the brilliance of his mind, and then that's been redeemed to you as well. I ask that as we mull over what we've talked about this morning and tonight and tomorrow, that you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth and that will pair that truth with the love and heart of Jesus Christ. Please show us new ways to reach out to people around us, including people struggling with homosexuality or transgenderism or whatever. Father, please show us how to be a safe place for them to come to. And thank you so much for providing Dr. Yuan and his family to teach us about that and to help show us the way Please continue to bless him in his work and his ministry. Um, and please help them to see and feel our love while they're here in this little town of Three Hills. Thank you for all your goodness to us and for the Holy Spirit who binds us all together into one family and makes this kind of fellowship possible. In your name we pray, amen. 
Thanks for coming out. Enjoy the rest of your evening.